Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Okay, welcome everyone to our ninth installment of the year-long precepts program. <clears throat> we just finished our free writing for 10 minutes after sitting and our question prompt for free writing today was what is your unanswered question right now? Would anyone like to uh, share anything about what they wrote or what your question is or maybe your your musings on it. We have uh, we kind of have a shorter program tonight, so it's nice that we have a little more time for uh, some discussions if anyone feels like it. Yes, Fabienne. I realize that a lot of my questions are related to the situation in the world, actually, and the unknown. And then it makes me realize that all those questions, all those source of anxiety is kind of totally out of my control. And then from there, I moved more like, uh, as I progress, I realized that I was making a list of uh, things that I'm grateful for. So, yes, I'm, also uh, very grateful for this class because it has helped me a lot uh, to realize to be less reactive and not be driven by my emotions. So or to understand myself better and the way my emotion affects me in my relation to, to the world in general of two people around me so i'm very grateful for that so that's my sharing from the from the writing thank you gratitude practice that's it's an excellent practice i highly recommend it hey i'll share a little bit so this is really about the chapter that we're on, but I guess it applies all the way. Um, but this is really, I, I guess this chapter is like super <laughs> uh, crucial, right? Because this is what it comes down to, right? This isn't just about us and our preferences and our relationships, but this is like, how are we not causing harm and how are we actually supporting life? And that's huge and really important undertaking. And I guess my question is, you know, the chapter talked about how we, we don't always know. I mean, there's no dogma here and there's no list of, you know, do this, don't do that. And we have these different, um, you know, suggestions, these precepts that we live by and, you know, other things in the tradition. But really it's about being able to assess each situation and make the right choice with what you have, right? To be able to like, um, to be flexible enough to meet the needs of each moment. And, and I guess, you know, my big question is, it's really easy to justify any kind of behavior, right? Like terrible people do terrible things. And if you ask them, they will not say that they're terrible, right? Nobody thinks they're doing something horrible. Um, and, and you layer on top of that, the fact that every single person has their own lived experiences and everyone is, has their own point of view. And so, you know, they might think that doing things a certain way, and, and we're talking even small things like the way that, you know, what do you, how do you choose to spend your money? Like who, what kind of companies are you supporting or anything like that? But these are, these are choices that we make and they have repercussions. And, and I just don't, I mean, how do we know we're not fooling ourselves? How do we know that we're not just making ourselves the heroes of the story, that we're rationalizing with very rational lies, right? Because we're very intelligent creatures. How do we know we're not doing that um, 
when we're confronted with these dis like infinite number of decisions, every ethical and moral decisions every day. And there's probably no simple answer to that, but I'm just, that's what's on my mind right now. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, that's, you know, the simple answer to your question is <laughs> that's why we have the precepts. That's why the precept study is so important in a practice like this is because if you, when you start to examine the mind with the mind, mm -hmm. it's easy to go down the rabbit hole of justifying just about anything. Right, exactly. Right. So uh, we use these precepts, precepts as an ethical framework, a scaffolding, like a boundaries to keep us um, contained enough that we can explore it all. We can unpack it all. Um, but stay inside those boundaries. Don't kill anyone while you're doing it, right? Don't abuse sexuality while you're doing it, right? So that's that's our 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 scaffolding that allows the free flowing exploration to unfold without us uh, getting into trouble. But is there any kind of corrective measure that we impose on ourselves or that are imposed on us by the sangha or or the path that helps to check us? I'm really paranoid about this because, <laughs> because I lived for a long time in a very specific mindset and then came out of that and realized that I had been greatly in error for right. many, many years. Right? Well, you're, yes, there is another way and you're, you are demonstrating it very well right now. You're checking with us. Yeah. Right. Outside voices, very important. The relationship with the teacher is, is fundamental in our tradition. And that's one of the reasons is because you get an outside reflection of someone who's uh, stepped on the landmines, you know, broken their legs in all the ditches of stupid things you can do and, and can see the mental traps that we can talk ourselves into along the way. So you get somebody, a buddy to help you avoid those. Yeah, but, but spiritual friendships, very important relationship with a teacher, also important. Thank you. Some important things you're raising there. Mitch, you look like you had a, a, a comment that you wanted to, to weigh in on on that one. Yeah, well, you know, it kind of stuck home with me because it's like, I, one, one thing you just said was, you know, we are, I think we are the, uh, the main character in our own studies. Uh, and, and we're right, we're writing our books and we're writing them, you know, it's about us and who we, who, you know, how we want to live. And uh, I think that's kind of, you know, I guess you just said it, Todd, it's, it's, it's having someone else to, to talk to and see what you're doing and being able to converse with somebody else who, who may understand or at least uh, hopefully it's gonna be supportive one way or another. And, you know, I think, you know, that's what our community is about is it's a, it's, it is a supportive community. And, uh, you know, when I was writing, you know, I was, you know, everybody has these deep thoughts. And of course I don't have any of these deep thoughts. <laughs> For me, what, you know, mainly what, what came up, you know, uh, uh, first off, first off, I want to thank you for for this program. I mean, it's been wonderful and uh, very thought provoking. And uh, so, for me, one thing that came up with, you know, how do I follow up? We got kind of the easy, the, the simple thing is like, what's next? But it's like, how do I follow up on this? Uh, and what can you know? What can I do uh, to do that? And and then you know. That's kind of a leap, you know. What is, is that kind of scary, sort of? Uh, if I'm if I'm not, you know, looking forward to this every month, what am I going to look, look looking forward to, or how am I going to uh, be involved? And so that's uh, just something that I'm I'm looking at. I think. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I want to thank you very much for all this. This is for all all y'all being here also sharing it uh yeah it's a, it is a, a wonderful community 
But thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Mm -hmm. Leslie, you were about to jump mm. in. Well, um, I, uh, whenever you ask a question, I always immediately go, oh my God, what's the right answer? And then uh, this well, time- Well, that's a, that's a great, I mean, that is a great experiment, right? You get this pebble thrown in your pond and you immediately see how you habitually react. Oh my gosh, what's yep. the right answer? Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, I just decided to relax and see what comes up. And um, what comes up for me is the biggest question right now on my plate is um, I'm, I am a, uh, a counselor with uh, it kind of in training. I graduated a couple of years ago. I'm right in the middle of my five-year clock time clock for getting my licensure hours. And the question is, do I want to continue? Do I really want to? Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's a lot of things I have to do now to set that up for, you know, expires in two years, but um, that kind of almost uh, contradict what we're learning, which is, you know, the doing versus the being. And, and I retired a couple of years ago. This is going to be my retirement gig, but it's turned out to be a lot more effort than I thought. Um, Anyway, I, I'm rambling now, but it's just, that's kind of where I went with that. Um, so Mitch, <laughs> I feel like I didn't have much deep either, but it was deep for me, but it wasn't any kind of, uh, anyway. So that's Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. And it's, it's what, what make, what you said makes me think of is just how nice it is to uh, be given a bit of space to see what's there, mm -hmm. right? Perhaps, I don't maybe it's been on your mind all day, but I know for me, often I won't even be aware of these things that are bubbling up until mm -hmm. there's some pause in the day to allow them to happen. Well, if anyone else likes to, to uh, mention anything about your unanswered question, you can go ahead. I was also going to ask about any reflections from the last months of last month of being out in the world after uh, discussing anger with Robin last month. Any any observations or any reflections on about uh, how the precepts in real life have been going for you over the last month? We'll say that, uh, who was it, uh, Nathan? His email about tension a couple of days ago, that really struck me. And it's kind of like along the same line of the anger, but with me, it's the uh, um, trying not to react. Can, can you say more about how it struck you? What do you mean? Um, well, it first struck me as, oh my God, I do that, I do all that. And then how hard it is to, to take the time, I mean, it's it's easy for me to reflect back on what I did and say, oh, well, I, you know, I didn't, you know, but it's hard for me to take the time in the moment to, um, to think about that. So that, that was, that was even, that's even a tension in and of itself. Is, mm -hmm. um, so um, anyway, it's just it caused me to think a lot. Rosemary, you're you're on mute still. Um, I think I have a hard time with um, really sitting with the exercises in the book where we're reading the chapter and then and now here's how you practice and really just sitting with um, the questions. And I really pretty much left it to last night, this particular, I mean, I read the chapter, but the practice part. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess I, I, um, I'm a little 
may be anxious about just sitting with um, what comes up. I did do it last night, but it was not until last night that I, um, I guess, uh, took the time and um, decided, okay, let's, I, you know, let's face this thing. Um, and other, other, other um, precepts um, came a little bit easier. Um, and I don't think it was this particular one. I think it was maybe one, one, a few before, um, where I did, I went right for it and it was kind of difficult. It was the one on the substances, but didn't have to do with more with, um, TV watching for me. And it was pretty profound and upsetting. So, but I did, I did get to it, but, um, I, th I think the, um, looking at myself is always happening, you know, um, and I'm always learning. Um, and my question really, I've had a lot of anxiety today. And my question was, and I was like kind of coming in and out. It gets kind of a, a knot in my stomach. Um, and the question was, how can I manage uh, my anxiety when I can't get a handle on its source? And when will I, and someone said this in the inquiry today, and um, when will I start? by greeting it with compassion um and when will i sit and write or just observe what might be happening um today something like that um and then i was writing about when it went away and when it came back it actually went away when we were sitting just now so yeah. that was interesting i guess that's a that's a teaching right there so yeah, one of the most interesting things um, that I've noticed when sitting is, is, you know, the Buddhist teaching of impermanence and how quickly these things will come and go and how it can change, you know, five times in a 10 minute sitting, the emotions and the thoughts. It's kind of wondrous. Where do they come from? Where do they go? The only other thing I would say is um, sometimes it's really beneficial and to, to move away from the uh, intellectual pursuit of the root of anxiety and stay with the uh, somatic and physical experience of the anxiety and just carefully study the physical experience of it. And often maybe the uh, insight into it will come later through the body. It's an experiment to try anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Last call. Anyone else? Okay, we'll move into this month's chapter. Chapter 12, I take up the way of supporting life. Um, more traditionally phrased in the negative of not killing right, or not harming life. <clears throat> but I like the, the positive uh, phrasing of this one. Because we can start with, you know, a basic question that if you start observing how not to kill, how does one not take a life and survive? It's not possible, is it? Right? We start right there. We as, uh, you know, human beings, it's not possible for us to survive without taking life. We can be vegetarian. That's maybe getting closer, right? But we're still going to be uh, destroying plants, a life form in order to survive. This is, this is the nature of our being. So that's not possible. So it is better to, to rephrase this, to state it positively. How do we support life? 
So it's more than than just not destroying life. Right? Supporting is is affirming. It's it's not just not being cruel. And the way that this is worded invites us to see how we're connected to all life and how all life supports us and invites us to see how we can support it. A connection with all of life rather than being disconnected from it in others. So from the second page in the chapter, third page, I'm going to read a little paragraph here. The idea here is not to cease taking any life at all, but to face squarely our intentions and allow ourselves to make sensible choices for each and every situation. In this way, we learn how to support and embrace all life. To take up the way of supporting life is to do the best we can to be open to and to preserve life whenever possible, and to be clear and present in those times we cannot. I take this precept not as an injunction to never kill, but as a directive to become more directly aware and present to the unquestionable life force in all things and why we intentionally or unintentionally ignore it and interrupt it. So the turn here, as it is in most of the other precepts, is to turn um, on that awareness knob and to become attuned to what our intention is and try and establish an intention that's aligned with our aspiration of how we want to be in the world. So there's no answer to this riddle. How does one survive and not take life? But Diane suggests, quote, the solution is in an unrelenting determination to be awake and present to the full scope of our reactions, which may rise out of our fear and pain and rest in the dead spot of the experience before we swing into action. It's kind of the stop, look, and listen model. <clears throat> An unrelenting determination to be awake and present in the full scope of our reactions. So this is probably sounding familiar at this point in the year, right? That, that this is the same precept study process to bring awareness and care to our present situation and experience, right? To pause in the dead stop and not act reactively out of habitual responses. So in this chapter, she covers a wide range of examples, you know, from killing bacteria, putting an antiseptic on a cut on yourself, right, to ensure that you don't kill yourself from a septic, you know, septic shock or infection, but yet you're killing all the bacteria. There's no black and white. She starts with a, you know, that small example and goes all the way into abortion and euthanasia, very difficult subjects. Asking the question, what is right action in this situation? What is right action in this situation? This puts us in the Bodhisattva practice hall, right? <clears throat> I, when I, I think I was taking the precepts um, when I had an experience. Uh, we had just moved into this house out here. It has large decks. The whole, the whole house is, is out in the floodplain, so it's all elevated. And 
there's large decks out front. And um, one day the kids, I think, came out in the spring and were running around and jumping down the stairs, you know, causing the whole decks to shudder and everything. And before we knew it, there was huge swarms of wasps. There was they, over whatever time period it had been since we'd been out there at the front. Um, lots of wasp nests had nested under the deck and the kids were jumping off the stairs right on over, you know, the boards that the, the wasps were, had, had nested on. So um, my two little boys, you know, there were probably five and seven at the time, you know, run screaming and there's, you know, dozens or hundreds of wasps chasing them. And so I went to Peg and I was like, what do I do about that situation? You know, you know thou shalt not kill. <clears throat> There's never a clear answer, right? But you have to decide. Well, I can tell you the wasps were not there the next week. I decided <laughs> against the wasps. But as part of the, as part of the um, intention we have here, I studied it for a while. You know, what, what's the trade-offs? What are the pros and cons? Those were the same stairs that every guest who comes into my house walks up. Right, and I may not be there to warn them. Do I put a sign up that says come around back? Wasps in the way? Could have done that, I guess. <clears throat> Maybe I'm a bad bodhisattva. I killed the wasps. There's no clear answers here, right? But there's a, there's a process of investigating. And I definitely think we improve our lives and the lives of those around us when we pause and consider it and consider what our aspiration is and what our intention is. I wouldn't have done that a year or two before. I would have just grabbed the you know, wasp spray. <clears throat> so there's no black and white rules here, as Q was saying. We long for these laws and rules to make things black and white and clear. Mitch would know something about that, <clears throat> right? And that's, uh, well, uh, not having any experience, that sure seems like it would be easier. <clears throat> no, he's shaking his head no, yeah. Yeah, it's probably an oversimplification. But we do long for these black and white, clear rules. But each situation is different. If we, if we did a, a thought experiment, right, a little exercise, each one of you could probably come up with a situation or a scenario where taking life might be the best course of action. So there's no black and white here. Even worse than that, as Diane points out in the chapter, defining life itself is hard sometimes what is life it depends on your frame of view and she discusses uh, some examples with uh, i think it was nasa scientists trying to determine <clears throat> what would even qualify as finding life on mars would we know it when we saw it if it's a much different type of life than we're used to. Taking even further, um, we as a society can't agree on when life starts. We have trouble agreeing on when life ends. She used the example that up until recently, uh, you know, 100 years ago, a doctor would just put his ear down on someone's chest or a finger on their pulse. And if he couldn't detect anything, they were dead. <clears throat> now we have uh, much better technology, brain scans, but that's just now. What will we learn in the next decade about life that we don't know now about when it starts or stops? These are all gray areas. But this precept invites us to begin to investigate how we view life. 
how we value different lives and forms of life differently. How is it that um, we can have these deep conversations, but um, you know, sitting outside at a picnic, you'll swat the mosquito on your arm before you even think about it. Right? It's just a natural reaction. <clears throat> I think most of us, you know, value the life of a mosquito less than we do our puppy. Where does that come from? So this precept invites us to investigate how we view life, how we view different forms of life. <clears throat> and investigate in the opposite, the mind of killing. Um, Diane brought up an interesting example when she was at a retreat with Sojin Mel Weitzman and he was doing a Dharma talk. There was uh, some mass genocides going on in the world at the time. And Diane commented that how wonderful it was that they were in retreat and they could enjoy this time away from all killing and uh, not have to partake of that, what was going on in the world. Then later that evening, her job was Tenzo to, to feed all of the uh, practitioners. Tenzo is the head cook at a, at a monastery or at a retreat. And she mentioned to Mel that she wanted to, to cook Swiss chard, you know, the green vegetable, and asked him about, you know, harvesting that for dinner. And his response back to her was, sure, go murder all the Swiss chard you want to feed everyone. Just putting that in, needling her a little bit, saying, you think you're going to be here and, and never kill anything by being in retreat. Just pointing out that gray area that We're always taking life in some form. And that's pointing to the mind of massacre itself without allowing the object of what is massacred to interfere with the investigation. That's an, an interesting comment to me that it's useful to look at the, the state of mind, the thought of mind, that leads to devaluing life, that leads to killing ultimately, if you let it go so far, without looking at the object of what would be killed and valuing it, just looking at how we think about it. That can be enlightening. is there a is there a hierarchy of life in buddhism i mean mm. is it really you know <laughs> is it really all life's the same value yeah like a mosquito and a baby or you um, know i mean it seems on, on one hand that seems absurd on the other hand it also seems like Practical intelligence doesn't make life valuable, or you know, ability doesn't make life valuable. Hmm. I don't know the answer to your specific question. You know what Buddhism historically teaches. I, I mean, I I want to say that my gut reaction is that it values all life the same mm -hmm. from what I remember, but I don't remember specifics i'm not sure if i'm correct or not or what you know historically has been taught but um i'm just thinking of you know different sects of buddhism which you know have trouble building their monasteries because it takes them so long to try and clear the earthworms away before right. they start building the building right because they're right. trying so carefully 
So I think traditionally the answer is just to value life in general without there being a hierarchy. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. And there was another example of a woman who, who worked at the suicide prevention hotline in her wrestling with how to help someone in the present moment, knowing that depressed individuals or people that are going through some trauma like that, even if she does convince them not to take their own life in that moment, that there's a very good chance that the next day or the next moment or the next week, they will. And how she had to accept the fact that one day the person might kill themselves, but her job was to be their friend in that moment, to do what she could in that moment, and accept the narrow, the narrow scope of her ability, the narrow scope of that phone call. And, and she, she gave it a term, she called it the tense present, the tense present. So the key point is, whatever the situation, you have to act in that moment, in that tense present. You don't have the luxury of, of knowing the future or acting in the past. in the tense present, without the knowledge of knowing what will happen next. So this precept, unfortunately, doesn't offer any answers. Rather, it keeps driving us to come back to be awake and present in this, in this tense present moment and do the best we can while maintaining our intention to support life. And I think that's the key to this particular precept, is it keeps bringing us back to the present moment and invites us to consider carefully what our aspiration is. And this is where the, I think the Mahayana Buddhism and the Bodhisattva vow is so valuable because it keeps acting like an orienting beacon towards uh, reducing suffering and finding liberation for all beings. It reorients us away from the self-centered dream, away from what we think is good for us and it asks us to try and consider what's good for all life. So I'm gonna pause there for any comments or questions, Mitch. And one thing that, that it kind of brings together for me is it brings together a lot of the precepts and and it's just for, for one thing, it's just being present for others. You know, if, if uh, it's kind of, you know, it's an overall supporting life, but sometimes just supporting people and just being there, you know, just being there with them or sitting with them uh, can be a, a way to support them and be there, be there for them. And I think that will help sustain I, you know, you, you never know what people are going to be needing, but sometimes just being present uh, and being willing to listen is, uh, I think, life sustaining and life supporting. So I would, I like to think of this not just, you know, like you said, not killing. How do you? I like, I like it. How do you support life? And part of that, I think, is just being present. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes.
<clears throat> she also goes into the the process of how we how to delve into our deepest intention and how to make a decision and she uses some very you know challenging examples of um, keeping or terminating a pregnancy for example in her own personal experience about the process of investigating this precept <clears throat> to try and bring us back to the present moment and be awake to, to what we're doing. So um, we won't go through all that here, but I invite you if you ever have you know, a, a difficult decision to make to, to take a look at her process of, um, it's very practical, like most people would begin with making pros and cons lists, um, but then using that as a jumping off point to try and investigate our personal agenda to try and investigate how we're looking at things from a self-centered view, try to make those personal agendas more conscious rather than habitual, making lists without judgments, at least at first, to try and slowly uncover how we're thinking about a situation. And then once that's done, we can later come back and see how these pros and cons um, might be driven out of self-concern and see how they are or are not connected with supporting life as a way to help us show our own intentions. And then at the end, moving from intention to experience, to deepen our experience and rest in our physical world, to notice the feelings that arise to awaken to our own personal experience and notice the thoughts that arise. So it's very similar to the process, the investigative process of the other precepts, but I think it is a, uh, it's a good one to revisit if you ever are in a very challenging situation. And the final point made about supporting life is the responsibility is with us, not them, whoever they are in your situation. Responsibility is with us, not them. This precept of supporting life is put squarely on our shoulders, our awareness, our intention, our aspiration that ultimately lead to our actions. Stopping the war or the battles begins with us. Um, in Living by Vow, a book by Shahaka Okamura, he writes, all Mahayana practice is based on the Bodhisattva vow. The vow has two aspects becoming a Buddha and helping all beings become a Buddha. These two cannot be separated. We vow to become Buddhas together with all beings. The Bodhisattva vow is an essential point in Mahayana teachings and practice. Vow is essential for all bodhisattvas. In fact, part of the definition of a bodhisattva is a person who lives by vow instead of by karma. Karma means habit, preferences, or a ready-made system of values. As we grow up, we learn a system of values from the culture around us which we use to evaluate the world and choose actions. This is karma and living by karma. In contrast, a bodhisattva lives by vow. Vow is like a magnet or compass that shows us the direction toward the Buddha. So what he's calling out there is that ready-made system of values, the rules, 
that come from your culture, right? that's karma. The bodhisattva vow is that orienting beacon towards awakening, towards supporting life that doesn't have a pat answer, but it has a direction. It has an intention for sure. Becoming a Buddha and helping all beings become a Buddha. These two cannot be separated. They are not two things. We vow to become Buddhas together with all beings. To me, if you want supporting life in a nutshell, there you go. So that's what I have for you on this chapter. Any reflections or arguments, discussion topics? When you said the comment, um, being stopping more begins with us or something like that. I can't remember your exact words. That, that again, I feel the tension with that. It's like, well, what can I do? Um, anyway, I just was curious if you would expand a little bit more on that. You can't have a war with one person. So, so you mean kind of symbolically uh, making things right in my own life? Is that what? I mean, when you said the war, I'm like, I'm th I immediately go to Ukraine. It's like, yeah, well, what yeah, am I going to yeah. be able to do? About maybe, that? maybe the wrong metaphor to be using these days. But oh, I'm just okay. I'm talking okay. about more the internal battles and the, the fighting with ourselves and others, and um, that we have we have the responsibility because we get to choose how we react and we get to choose our actions. I also think, just to respond to that, um, we're not completely helpless. Like, I don't think it's a, you know, an all or nothing thing. Like, we're not Wonder Woman or Superman. We're not going to, like, fly <laughs> into the battlefield and stop the war, right? But there's all kinds of little things that I think that can add up. And even if it's not, you know, we may not even be able to stop killing, but there's lots of things you can do to, to support life there right? Like there's in the news, I've read that there are so many people just sending money over there, right? To different, um, oh, it was the, it was the uh, Airbnb thing. People here were, were renting Airbnbs, renting them just so that they had that income, that kind of thing. And, and I think because we are in a democracy and we do have access to people who make those decisions, that's also a thing that we can do. I mean, we don't have to labor under the the illusion that we're going to solve all the world's problems. But I think when you look at it and the choices, should I do nothing? Or can I do these few things and hope that everyone else is doing a few things and that that will make some kind of difference? I think that's that's where I land and things like that. Because otherwise I get so overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's no, I lose hope. And then mm -hmm. I'm useless to myself and everyone else. Makes sense. Um, so um, a few things, just um, thinking about how we can get aggressive or kill in our thoughts. Um, just, you know, ill will, um, uh, negative thoughts about, about others or even about ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, that counts too. And um, the other thing is, um, oh, that she makes a nice point about, um, well, the, the anti-war movement, well, everybody was fighting with everybody else, you know? So, you know, while we're, you know, it's like fighting for peace, fighting each other with our opinions and that kind of thing. I thought was, that was a good, a good um, warning as well.
Well, if there's nothing else, we were going to, uh, there was a suggestion made that we could uh, review a little bit about the learning record with some of our extra time here. So we're just going to take five or 10 minutes to do a little uh, refresher on the learning record. Um, because I think there were some questions about how that how that's supposed to work. So let me I'm going to share screens here for a minute. All right, so let's see. I'm trying to make all your faces visible while I do this. There we go. <clears throat> all right, so on our, our precepts program web page on the website, um, there's some handouts here on the learning record. So there's there's the copies in PDF and Word doc form of the learning record that you can print and fill out. There's some tips, which is just a little writing from PEG. Um, I won't read it here, but it explains a little bit about why we do this, that it's an instrument to um, basically take observations over time, right? That that's the, the benefit of the learning record is you capture a moment in time of your experience and how you're thinking, feeling, perceiving things in that, that moment in time. And as you do this over the course of a changing periods of time and changing study, you start to see an arc of transformation. It's in a similar vein as uh, making a mark on the doorframe with your child, right? That one point in time is how tall they were is not that interesting. What's interesting is to come back and look at all the marks over the years and see how they change. So that's the real aid in this uh, and why this process is used is because people have a way of thinking, oh, I've always been like that or have a way of not noticing the shifts in their perspective over time. So these observations give us um, snapshots at different points along the path. Um, another thing that another point she makes in here is that the what to observe is not that important, right? You can pick any observation you want. Um, you'll end up picking things, you know, for a reason, consciously or unconsciously, and, and that'll be one of the things that you notice over time is maybe what you're picking to observe changes or what's important to you to observe is changing. But we don't have to try and get the perfect observation or, or pick the right thing. Just trust that the observations themselves will be helpful. Here's, a, here's one that's worth reading here. This process is self-actualizing. You don't need to have any idea how to use these mindful observations at first. The process of regularly noting our own experience, however, with this fairly focused and precise instrument teaches us how to use it best for each individual person. That's why we don't specify any content but rather invite each person to discover what can be learned through it. So getting to the learning record, here we go. So there's, there's different sections. There's, you know, I'll start at the beginning here. There's a, there's these parts that have letters and numbers, A1, A2, B1, C1, B2, C2. These are, these are just, um, you know, the, the A1 and 2, these are two things you do at the very beginning, you know, at, at the beginning of the year. And then there's kind of a mid-year reflection where you go through and you kind of look back at your observations and you take stock to try and start beginning to see an arc of where you've been going. And then at the end of the course, there's a similar kind of um, going back, taking stock and interpreting what you've seen or what you've noticed about the changes. So those are those are kind of the beginning, middle, and end uh, little summary sections. 
but the main point or the main thing we're doing is the weekly or however often you do them observations so i'm skipping the evaluation stuff and just going to an example here's an example page in here that's helpful to look at uh, of an observation so there's an observation a date there's a and then it goes into kind of the the it takes the format of almost like the five skandhas or the five heats the five kind of ways of sense perceptions of looking at the world breaking it down that way and you may choose to fill all five out each time for an observation or perhaps you know one isn't coming to you and uh you know you might skip that so that that's fine but let's look at an example that peg's done for us here so the form right this is factual what did you observe when you're sitting down and you've decided okay i'm going to do an observation right um i saw a mother spank her child at the grocery store that's the form right that's the fact of what you saw her examples are my car hit a light pole my dog was lying in the sun. No judgments, right? Just a fact. What did you observe? What was the physical aspect of what you observed? Stick with what might be observed in terms of physical forms and their interactions. My friend arrived late and breathless. And then we go into sensations, perceptions, thought and emotions, consciousness, and relationality. So sensations, that's pretty straightforward. Physical sensations, um, feeling, um, you know, physical touch feelings, not emotional feelings. Sight, sound, smells, tastes. Then perceptions. Um, what sensory perceptions did you observe? You know, I got those backwards. Sorry, I was talking about perceptions when I said that. So, yeah, sensations. She's she's using the term sensations to to uh, your immediate basic reaction, attraction, aversion, neutral sensation. Her examples were, I was numb with shock. I had no reaction. I was drawn towards it. And then perceptions are the sense of perceptions I was talking about. What did you hear? What did you see? What did you feel on your skin? Thoughts and emotions. What thoughts or emotions did you observe? For example, suddenly I felt afraid to open the door. Or, <coughs> having the thought she's never coming back. If you're able to catch a thought or label a thought, those can be very useful. Same with emotions. And then the next category is consciousness. This one gets a little trickier, but what we're looking for is what's, what's the overall feeling tone right or what's your conscious state of mind i was i was scattered and confused right or i was agitated or i felt calm and clear right or i felt expansive muddled for example i was jittery and on edge and then finally the relationality of it. What was the relational quality of what you observed? Did you notice how your activity or interactions affected the connections in the situation? So it's all about relations and connections. Healthy attachment or attunement, connectedness. For example, he calmed down and breathed a sigh when he heard what I said. We started laughing at the same time. She stared out the window, would not speak to me.
So any questions about uh, making an observation? This is very helpful, Todd. Thank you. You're welcome. Would anyone like to share anything that they found uh, interesting or unusual or anything noteworthy about any particular observation that might encourage others or they might find helpful? Okay, that's okay. Sometimes we get responses, sometimes we don't. I'm making an observation, no one answered the question. <laughs> Todd, I would yes. say uh, I had, now that the weather is good, I made a little spot outside at an old carpet to, to sit outdoors, like uh, practice outdoors. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a, it's just really interesting to me how much easier it is for me to be in the moment when I am outdoors and how easy it is for me to like be aware of my senses and to have these kinds of observations about myself. Whereas when I'm inside, it feels a lot more like I'm, I, I'm, I'm working to concentrate and there it's much more of a relaxing into it. I don't know what that means, but I thought I would just share that. Um, and I also just wanted to say that I have observed this um, butterfly painting behind Leslie, and I really like it. So <laughs> I wanted to say that before, before this was over. <laughs> you. But I, I also, uh, Amanda, I'll, or Q, what do you want us to call, Q or Amanda? You? It was good. Okay. Um, I, I, I also feel that way about being outside. And that's one of the reasons the butterflies up there. It's like when I'm outside, um, when I'm inside, I think I'm, I'm too visually, I get too visually overwhelmed on all the things that I need to do. And when I'm in my house, when I'm outside, you know, as long as I look straight out, it's, uh, it's easier to just um, to not get overwhelmed like that. If you've ever taken one of your pets outside, like we have guinea pigs or cats, and the minute they go outside, you can just see that they like, they're just experience, like there's so much new stuff out there and they just get really still and it's all kind of, you know, you can tell they're like experiencing the sights and the smells and the feeling of the sun, even if they can't express it. And I think that that's really fascinating. I think that's so interesting. And, and I feel the same thing happens to me when I go outside, right? That, that happens to my pets where I like step outside and I suddenly I feel a breeze and it's just all of a sudden I'm like quiet and experiencing all these things. And I don't know. I mean, I guess part of that is that we're, we are of the natural world. So maybe we're more uh, inclined to be present there. But I, I have noticed that. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, I think we will end there for this evening and, and actually get out early for once, even though it's always my intention. Thank you so much for your continued participation and presence. And uh, I wish you well out there in the world until we see you again next time. Thank you. Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. <laughs>